Today we're going to look at, uh, finish up these few little chapters we looked at in the book of Hebrews. We, if, you're, if you're newer or a guest, we've been actually going through the book of Exodus uh, for over a year. We'll finish it next week with Exodus chapter 40. We took a pause here with the book of Exodus because we had, this section of Exodus repeats as they're building the tabernacles or consecrating the priests, as they're figuring out all the offerings that God had given to, to Moses on the mountain, they repeat it because we heard the, the instruction given to Moses and then they, they put it into action. And so instead of repeating that, for those of you who've been here the entire time, we decided to look at the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews addresses those things, of course, in a new covenant perspective, right? It takes what's being established in the book of Exodus and then tells us how the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus impacts those things. And so today we're going to finish up in Hebrews here in, in chapter 10, 1 through 18, and then next week we'll finish up all of Exodus in chapter 40, and we'll have Easter, and then we'll start a new series on the Gospels, where we're going to work our way uh, probably for about three years through every, every aspect of all four Gospels, the, to the best we can in order, um, so chronological order. So that's where we are. So we'll jump in here in Hebrews chapter 10. And remember that the author of Hebrews, who we don't know who that author is, by the way, um, they don't identify themselves in the letter. There are some people who believe it's the Apostle Paul. Some of the language is fitting for that, but we don't know. Paul always addressed his audience and then would, would have a signature at the end, so why he wouldn't have done that here is unknown. Uh, so we don't know who wrote this, the, the human author, but we do know the point of this section, the argument that's being made is that the tabernacle the priests, the offerings, everything that went along with that, were all pointing to something else. They were all pointing to something more. And the author of Hebrews is telling us what they were pointing towards. What was the point? So just because they're, they're, they're done doesn't mean they were bad or wrong. They just served their purpose. And we see that as we jump in here in chapter 10. A theme we saw earlier in chapter 8, by the way, right? The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the system that we read about in Exodus as it was being established, where all the different offerings are made, some of course, it, one of them, excuse me, is a sin offering, where a person would confess their sin on the head of that animal, that sin, that animal would be killed, blood would be shed on their behalf. Teaching, of course, the people that there is a consequence to sin, that sin has a cost. We have all that in what our author here refers to as the law, right? The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. That theme we saw in chapter 8, verse 5, talking about the tabernacle or the sanctuary as a shadow or a copy of what's in heaven. Here the author then is taking the law, saying the law itself was a shadow of good things that are coming. It was foreshadowing something that was to come. And of course the author is going to tell us that person is... Jesus. That's what the law was pointing towards, was the one who would fulfill that law or bring it to its culmination. But the law was not a, the reality itself. It's pointing to something It's good. The argument that we have in the book of Hebrews always that we have to understand is that the author isn't telling us the law was bad or wrong. 
of the tabernacle was bad or wrong, that priests or the high priests or offerings made were bad or wrong. The argument that they're making is that they're not needed anymore because what they were pointing towards has come to life. That all the, with the high priest or the priests or the tabernacle or the, how the tabernacle was divided or the furniture in the tabernacle, all those things were pointing to something greater. And that person is Jesus. So law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. The problem is, though the sacrifices were being made when they were being made as they were supposed to, and we of course know that Israel's history, that there were times in the history of Israel where, where, where the people being faithful to the, to the law, were they being faithful to the covenant? Absolutely not. There were times when they completely dropped the ball. But even in their moments of faithfulness, even in their moments when they were doing the right thing, the problem with it was is that there was no end to it. Because, spoiler alert, we're not perfect. We just keep on making mistakes. We keep on falling short. We keep missing the mark. All those, by the way, are descriptions for, for sin. We keep sinning. And so we have to keep then bringing offerings under the law. What the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand is that was an endless cycle that was never going to change. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. It couldn't accomplish what it was trying to. The law could do what? It could point out what sin was, but could it fix the problem of sin? No. And the law, God, when God designed it, when God gave it to them, He knew that. He knew that, they was never, that the law itself could not fix the problem. It just identified the problem. There's one thing between identifying a problem and actually fixing it. Your car is having a problem and the mechanic tells you there's something wrong but can't tell you what it is. There's a problem there. It says, yeah, it doesn't, your car doesn't sound right, but I hooked it up to the computer and I looked through it and everything looks fine. I don't, don't have a clue what's going on. So you've identified the problem, but the problem isn't being fixed. You can keep driving your car until it explodes and then you realize, well, there must have been a problem. The problem with the law was that the law identified the problem, but it didn't fix the problem. The problem was still there. Right? The sin problem was still there and the sin wasn't being taken care of completely that's what the author of hebrews is trying to get us to understand is the law served its purpose it identified what sin was but it couldn't fix it it never claimed it could verse 2 otherwise would they not have stopped being offered see if the if the problem was fixed they could have done what Stop making those sacrifices because the sin has been taken care of once and for all but it wasn't they kept offering and kept offering for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Of course, here the annual reminder of sins, what sacrifice are we talking about here? When the high priest went in on the Day of Atonement and made atonement for the sins of all the people for another year. That's the only time the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies. It was that one time year. Only the high priest could do it. 
and only once a year, and he entered in there to pay for the sins of the people for a whole year. Our author says the problem with that is you have to keep on doing that. And all it really does is remind everyone of their sin and their guilt, but it doesn't take the problem away. And then we get this in verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The author says, you can make all the offerings you want. You can, you can spill the blood of bulls and goats all you want, but the, it, they are never, that blood will never fix the problem once and for all. Fixes it for a little while, but it can't fix it for good. So here comes the good news. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about Me in the scroll. I have come to do Your will, My God. An interesting section here is this is a, a paraphrase. It's not a quote. It's a paraphrase of Psalm 40, 6-8. It is not word for word. Remember, we, because we have the Bible with us all the time, you can have it on your phone, you can get it on your computer, you can carry the actual Bible with you. We, when we quote something, we quote it generally word for word, depending on the translation you use. If you use a different translation, it might be a little different. Remember that when the book of Hebrews is written, or when all the Bible is written, do people possess Bibles individually? They do not. So when they quote from something, they're... they're the point they're trying to do, or they're trying to accomplish, is they're trying to, to, to get, to capture the essence of the, para, of the section of Scripture. Because remember, if they're quoting it, they're quoting it from, from memory. Which if you ever want to feel bad about yourself, just think about that for a minute. If you want to read Paul's works, anything Paul wrote, or anyone, but Paul especially, and when he starts quoting Scripture, rem remind yourself that he's doing that from memory, you will probably feel bad about yourself for a little bit. Because it's hard for us to remember things because of we don't practice the skill. We don't memorize things very often, right? They memorized whole books of the Bible. Jewish people, especially young kids, when they were learning, when they were in school, they would literally memorize entire books. If you're bored sometime or you're staying up late, go try to memorize the book of Genesis for me. Tell me how that goes for you. Or if you want to really hurt yourself, try Leviticus, right? If you're tired, you will go to sleep. I promise you that. But memorizing it will be difficult. So when they quote, when someone quotes scripture in the Bible, remember they're quoting it from memory, and so they're not going to, they don't, they're not worried about getting it exactly right. What they're trying to do is capture the essence. What is the point? So in 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 quoting the psalm, they're proving their point. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Of course, talking about, about Jesus. Point is, he's saying that if you go back and you, if you're trying to, if, you, if, if, the, if the person hearing the author of Hebrews' point here is getting uncomfortable, you go, hang on. Just look back in the book. God at certain times and throughout Israel's history said this about them, did he not? I know you're going through the motions. But that's not what I'm worried about. I want your heart. I want your heart. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, God. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Well, why were they, is he not pleased? Because it wasn't from here. 
You just go through the motions. That's not the point. It's not the point. God wants something much deeper from us than just going through the motions. So the author is saying, what's the point of the offering if we don't need it anymore? Something better has come. Picking up in verse 8, first he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire. This is a repetition of what we just read. Nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Here's the point. You read, they have a repetition of what we read before, trying to drive the point home. And then in verse 10, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's the point the author's trying to make. You can keep going through the motions, you can keep making those offerings, but why, when the offering has been made, and instead of being made all the time, once a year or every time you sin, it's been done once for all. That Jesus' sacrifice fixes the problem that the offerings, that the temple, that the priest, the high priest were all pointing towards, that they couldn't fix, Jesus has fixed in one faithful act. And he proves that point by this. Day after day, or she, I should say, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, of course, we know who this priest is, Jesus. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I love this illustration because it's very simple. You don't sit down until the task is done. That's what the author is trying to get us to understand. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. The priest came to work. They did their duty. They went home. They came to work. They did their duty. They went home. But while they're doing their duty, which a priest we had talked about, when you read what a priest does in the Old Testament, a priest is a glorified butcher. Right? Is what a priest is. Stands and does the work. Stands and does, That's hard work, by the way. The point the author is trying to make here is, what has Jesus done? But when this perfect priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because the work is done. The work is done. When Jesus, you remember, is hanging on that cross with not much left in him after he's taken quite a beating, is in hypovolemic shock because of the amount of blood he lost during the scourging and the trip to the cross. As they put those nails in his hands, wrists, feet, ankles, wherever they put them, probably the wrists because it captures your bones and helps you hold there just a little bit longer. 
probably through both his ankles, as he's there, hanging with not much left, what's he say at the very end? It is finished. And boy, when he said it, he meant it. That's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand, that when Jesus said, it is finished, as he hung on that cross, he meant it. It's done. The Gospel of Matthew tells us what happens right after the death of Jesus to the temple. There's a curtain in that temple and it rips in two from top to bottom. That curtain separated what? The holy place from the holy of holies. Why is that rip in two? Because Jesus is our high priest. You don't need that anymore, God's saying. It's open to everyone. See, Jesus' sacrifice was one sent for all. And now that he sits at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. He's coming again. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now that word there has caused quite a stir amongst people. Because this is talking about us. And I don't want to burst your bubble, but I'm guessing you're not this. What's so interesting about language, especially other languages, not that our language isn't great, but if you look at history of languages, English isn't a great language. I know we speak it and we understand it. But if you look at it, it's not, it's not awesome. I'm not going to lie to you. There's better languages in the world. I studied Greek for three years because I uh, don't like myself in Bible college. That's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my entire life. I promise you that. Uh, I'm in the middle of it, thought to myself, why am I doing this to myself? This was a choice I made. I didn't have to do this. Greek is a much better language than the English language. Just so you know, it is. It, it captures emotion far better than English does. So where English will have a, you use the word love, right? And you love your new car, and you love your family, and you love the meal you just ate, which you shouldn't love all those things, right? The same. That's in Greek, those words are all different. There's different words for different kinds of love. It captures it better than English, where English just said, oh, I, I love my pets and I love my kids. And someone looks at you like, I hope you love those things differently, right? Hope you love your kids more than your pet, depending on the day, I understand. <laughs> but I hope you love them differently. So this word perfect can mean lots of things with that way that's translated. That word that's translated can mean complete or whole, adequate, having arrived at a designed end. So when we read this, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect, it's not saying that we are perfect, that we are, because we're not. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, how do we appear before our God? See, God views us through the lens of Jesus. And he, in fact, was perfect in every way. So you aren't perfect. God knows that, and I'm hoping you know that. If you don't, you've learned something today. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But when God sees us, He doesn't see all the mess I've made. He sees me through Jesus. And it's because of that that we can be perfect. That we can be whole. That we can be adequate or complete. Jesus has made us appear as something we are not. And I'm sure glad He has. Because of that, 
to being made holy. It's a process every day. This section ends like this. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, she says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. The quote we have here is out of Jeremiah 31, which the author of Hebrews quotes quite a few times, telling us that this was the plan all along. That Jeremiah told us what was coming, right? That the first covenant was going to have an end and a new one was going to come. This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Of course, a reference to the Holy Spirit. How does God today put His laws in our hearts and on our minds? He has given us a gift, the Holy Spirit, that lives inside of us, that convicts, that encourages, that does all kinds of things on our behalf and for us. But God has given us of that gift And that gift came during this new covenant. Of course, he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. That's some good news, by the way. That no longer, it's not that God forgets them. God knows they're there. He knows everything. He's not stupid. He doesn't pretend. But he doesn't have to judge us based on those acts. Remember, our God is a holy and just God. He has to punish sin. has to do it. He sends His Son Jesus to take on that punishment on our behalf. So He can remember those sins no more. You can't do that outside of Jesus and the work that Jesus accomplished. And that point the author makes as we conclude here is, and if they have been forgiven, if our sins have been forgiven by God, then what would be the point of making those sacrifices any more? What has happened is we've accomplished the purpose that they were trying to but never could. That in Jesus, if our sins are forgiven, then what would be the point of of bringing those sacrifices anymore? Those sacrifices, the author told us, couldn't accomplish the purpose that Jesus did. Jesus accomplished it. Sacrifices were never going to. And so we don't need to bring those sacrifices anymore. We just need to put our hope, our faith, and our trust in Him. Earlier in this section, in verses 5-7, through seven, the author quotes Psalm 40. And I want to conclude today by just reading Psalm 40. Because remember, again, the author has probably this whole psalm memorized. That's how he's able to quote, or she's able to quote from it. And I want you just to hear it. Just, just listen to the psalm. It's a psalm of David. We know David, ups and downs in life. David is far from perfect, yet considered a man after God's own heart. David pins this psalm. And I want you to just hear it in its totality. Psalm 40. For the director of music, it's of David, a psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set me, my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in Him. 
Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you plan for us. None can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. For offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. Do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quickly, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, Aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, The Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful to have the opportunity to gather here today to open up your word and turn to the book of Hebrews, where we have been for these past few weeks, God, where the author gives us a picture of what you intended when you put all this in place, as we've read here in the book of Exodus. What was the point of the priest and the high priest, the tabernacle, the offerings, every piece of furniture that goes inside of it, God? You were pointing to something even greater. You were pointing to your son. Father, we are so grateful that he was faithful to you in every way. That he never knew sin. Though he was tempted, God, he never gave in. So we know we have a Savior who can relate. A Savior who knows what it's like to live here. Go through trial and temptation. We are so, great, we're so grateful that we do, God. Father, as Easter approaches, we pray that you would help us to focus on the meaning. Why we gather on Easter. Why do we celebrate? God, and we celebrate because the tomb is empty. And because the tomb is empty, God, we have hope in the future that can be found in no one but you. And God, we thank you for all that you do for us. We ask that you'd help us to be a witness to you everywhere we go and in everything that we do. We love you and give you all the glory and honor. We pray all this in the powerful and healing name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people. Son. Amen.